0: Chapter 15, which we've just read in its entirety, actually marks the final chapter of Saul's decline and rejection uh, as king, but in the chapters preceding it, chapters uh, 13 and 14, we see Saul, the king, beginning to unravel in his abilities, beginning to unravel in his obedience and call to be king to God's people. Just a little background again for those of us who hadn't been going through Samuel. The people, God's people, wanted to be like the other godless and multi-godful nations around them. You know, the ones that looked so together, The other nations look so strong, they're apparently so beautiful and stable and strong and fortified. So like the other nations, they wanted a king. Asking for a king wasn't an anti-God request, but an anti-their God reason for their request. You see, they believed that a king would give them more assurance than their God had provided which was a rejection of his word and his work for them. So their God gave them a king like the other nations with much warning that they would come under and feel the tyranny and insecurities and social slavery and disappointments of such a king. Now God's warning was answered by a real big national, So what? We want a king anyway. Saul was their man. He was tall. He was strong. He was handsome. He just looked like a king. He just looked like a leader. Someone who would be a visual and hopefully institutional inspiration to Israel and strike fear in the hearts of their enemies. Well, in today's sermon, we will learn the inevitable about Saul and his leadership that God was, after all, right, reigning as the king for 42-some years we forget, we, it's hard for us to think about this because the chapters run so close together. He reigned for 42 years and there's only one word to describe him and his leadership. A flop. A flop. Just like you and me in our world before a holy, and perfect God and a holy and perfect purpose, behind a small screen of successes, human flops. But it is this holy God and his holy purpose is for His people and now for us that he brings freedom and hope and the finale to the human flop. a flop, a fake. A farce, a fluke, a phony, a fantasy, a figment, a a fallacy, a fool. The list of words go on and on in description of the human attempt to have and foster religion, to rightly reason and react in their leadership and responsible relationships with others, of human beings trying to be right, to feel right, to be whole, to just be okay before their God, before others the God of the Bible. But we tend to be failures in drawing close to God, in drawing others to Him because we are and can be so flighty and faulty in our religious and reasonable and righteous attempts I think most of, here, most of us here have decided to just close our eyes and in our desperation go along with a less than perfect religion or religious leadings or, or to run from anything remotely resembling someone trying to lead you somewhere where every human being would love to be according to some principle or personal discovery. Wouldn't you like to know freedom from the human flop? From the fakeness, from the foolishness, God, I mean, the God we read about here today, the one whom we can only be a flop before in our personal attempts to be pleased while at the same time try to be pleasing to him, is offering freedom from and finale to the human flop, the human show, the human smokescreen. He does so by rejecting the foolishness of it all while granting flops like you and me Entrance and access to truly being his people and his truly and really being our God. What we see in Saul's end is that God rejects vain, false, fake, flopping religion. What do I mean by this? Rel- religion that is ritual without right relationship. I must tell you the situation in chapter 15 where he decides not to kill all the sheep but sacrifice them later in opposition to God's commands marks the third reported time in the story of Saul's end that he decides to do a ritual to be religious. To be what would be seen as a good Israelite thing to do in chapter 13 Saul makes a sacrifice to the Lord that he should not have made but got impatient and didn't wait for Samuel to do it then in chapter 14 the Philistines the war enemies of Israelites they're already running away because God of course remember uh, God always has his people win by upset it's never any strong uh, military or smart minds in chapter 14 God causes this earthquake to happen and so the Philistines get crazy and they start killing each other so God's all already has the enemies on the run and Saul decides, let's make an oath to the Lord that none of us should eat until I get my full revenge on the Philistines. What we see though is that these religious decisions, these rituals were all rejected by God. Because there were rituals without right relationship. First, Saul should not have been making sacrifices because he was not a priest uh, or or given special call by God to do so. He wasn't called into the right relationship as far as his title. He was the king. He was not the priest. He should not do such things. But, But deeper than that, Saul was performing these rituals without having a real heart believing relationship with the God who made him king. Without taking time to argue here that Saul was not a Christian, of course this is before Christ, but that Saul wasn't really regenerate, he wasn't a believer, Saul did not have a saving relationship with God. He didn't really believe God was there to save his people. He didn't truly look to and for God and God's glory for anything he did. He was in the ritual simply looking for a a good luck charm or to do what everyone else was doing or or what seems right to do in the moment. Let's look back at chapter 15, verse 15. When confronted about the sacrifice, listen to what he says. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And then if we look at verse 20 and 21. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. Of course he didn't. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep and cattle and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Do you see it? Did you miss it? Do you see what's happening here? The Lord your God. Not the Lord our God. The God of the sacrifice, of the ritual was not viewed and thus not really known to Saul as his God. He was simply performing ritual without relationship and God rejects that. God despises that. God turns his back on that. God seeks to end to end and destroy that. It's offensive to God. It, it's like sleeping with someone just to just for the feeling, just for the sex without the relationship. Religion without relationship is degrading to God. It's disrespectful of his power and work and dangerous to his relationship with people. But this is only second. To the other religious mistake Saul makes, which is ritual without obedience. Look at ha- what happens again in chapter 15. Saul is supposed to kill everything, and, and, and sometimes God gives special um, instructions about war. Sometimes He says, save the cattle. Sometimes He says, save this, or you can have that. This time the Lord was distinct have nothing alive when you're done. What does Saul do? Well, I think it may be better to save the best stuff and we can eat it and we can sacrifice it. Wouldn't that be better than what God said to do? He reasoned away God's direct command. He decided to take the way that was most convenient. He decided that God was wrong in this situation and for his dilemma. And he blatantly, with some good explanation, of course, goes against the Lord and actually doing a religious ritual. Now Samuel comes along speaking for God, declared disobedience as being equal to the sin of witchcraft and idolatry. Can't you see how? It's, it's like a witch, it's taking what God has deemed good elements and ingredients and animals and the elements that He's created to make, created to make or conjure something against Him. T- to take what He's made and conjure something against His desire. You see, obedience is about a relationship. And God gives His word and words of direction, direction so that you and I can be given right privilege to be with him to enjoy him and his benefits disobedience says i will take the means and rights and way of the uh, uh, of of the relationship it's like taking a love note from god and not just accidentally losing it but actually using its words and phrases and beautiful packaging and sending it to another lover disobedience with ritual hardens the heart it, it takes God for a fool. Like he doesn't see that he's being played or used or two-timed. Like somehow God will miss it or easily be appeased by maybe our coming to church after a night of no, maybe a life that is disrespectful to the way he's created you and others in the world. You know, when we disobey God, when we violate and and twist His love advances toward us, we can't just buy Him flowers or chocolates or, or sing well enough or go to enough small group meetings or tithe enough or raise our children good enough or abstain from sexual temptations long enough to counter ways that we have been disobedient. God rejects, rightly, the disrespect of his perfect desire for you, of his perfect person, of his perfect display and extension of relationship to his people. And second to that, vain religion just makes your life hard. You know, when people are super religious, it just makes life harder than it has to be. You know, Christianity becomes something about, it becomes a a matter of no freedom. There's a loss of joy and peace for human beings because you're always trying to find a way apart from a true heart motivation to do what's right. And so people get dragged to church and they get guilted into performing and they get set up for failure. I know some of you here hate and grew up hating church. Hating what it was all about because of fake religious parents or fake and religious leaders. Some of you even have hated God because you have had people you respect disrespect him. And it seems like God has honored or allowed that. And for some, it makes God seem real mean. You know, you have to do all these extra religious rules that your heart and life can't keep up with. But some leaders have said, this is what God, God's called you to. Come on, you know, it, it, it's not enough just to obey him. We have to do this or, or do that. Or maybe you've had leaders to lead you into disobedience. Or you've had parents say, come on, kids, let's go to church. But, it, but when you get home, it's a different story. I think about some movements in some of our churches, these, the faith movements. And I, I, I don't speak with, with, with incredible prejudice towards it because I, I, I was in this thing where, you know, if you've got problems, it's because you don't have enough faith. You know, the reason you're having such a hard time is you just haven't Jig good enough in front of God. You, you hadn't done the dance well enough. You, you haven't made God like you and love you and serve you well. Something's wrong with you. That's why you're having so many problems. Ritual without a right relationship. Some of us grew up more liturgical, more an an, an iconic movement of, you know, we want to transcend. And so we have the statues of this and the candles of that. And and you have to say the words just right. And and just by saying these words, then all of a sudden you're going to, your heart's going to transcend it ritual without relationship. And some of us are more familiar mistake the free grace movement right see so you just kind of take god and the stuff for granted which is ritual without obedience you know god can be fooled or he doesn't mind that the allowances you take because you don't feel like it or you have so many problems that he is failed to deal with so he deserves to be disobeyed he should understand because of grace of course he should understand our slackness He's responsible for this. But we've got grace. We throw that word around. Again, like flowers before God. I didn't do right, but grace, Lord. It's almost like if your wife isn't doing right, it's okay to have an affair. Cheap grace is what we call that. It makes God look changeable. Convincible, bribable, is sometimes only heard by people who got good religion. You know, it makes you laugh or get disillusioned with God. He's such a joke, you know. The church and the relationship represented before God declares clearly to all, declares to us that seems like God is, is in religion, and Christianity is a religion of fakers and floppers. And God is saying, I reject such Foolishness for the sake of my name and joy and relationship with people who belong and would belong to me. So God in rejecting Saul rejects vain religion and along with that his vain reactions, which is responding and reacting whether in obedience to disobedience or religious activity or other out of fear of others. Now Saul over and over again reacts, makes decisions. Takes his God-given responsible decisions and and acts not out of fear or faith in the God, in, in the God who called him or even the task that he's called to, but out of fear of people around him. Now here's what's at work here. I want you to see this. Saul was not God's choice. He was appointed and allowed by God as the people's choice for king. He was and knew and thus operated as if he was a king by popular vote. Now you understand how this works this time of year, right? Everyone gets in a debate and no one's ever wrong. And so he thought his authority and his position would continue because he got there by popular vote or or popular looks. So he thought, okay, I need popularity and strength. I need to be important in the eyes of others. So he leads with that thinking, with the kind of heart, and it's bad news for him and the people he leads, and it's offensive to God who should get first and find a respect in leading the people that he possesses. Now look what happens here. When the kingdom is stripped, look at his concern in verses 24 and 25. Then Saul finally admitted, after much excuse, Yes, I've sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions, the Lord's commands. What? For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Oh, please forgive my sin now and go with me To worship the Lord. And then we jump to verse 30. Then Saul pleaded again. I know I have sinned. But please at least honor me before the leaders. And before my people by going with me to worship the Lord your God. He's obsessed with what people think. He does something similar in chapter 13 in sacrificing when he should not have because all of a sudden people are starting to to get tense. And so he says, I'll just go ahead and do the sacrifice. I can't stand people's pressure. And then in chapter 14, he makes an oath, the the crazy oath that no one should eat. And what happens is his son, Jonathan, who's a great warrior and fighter with him, you know, he doesn't hear about it. And so there's some honeycomb in the ground and so Jonathan sticks his you know, javelin or whatever, the end of his javelin, and he eats some and goes, man, I feel much better. And so stuff starts happening bad, and Saul says, someone sinned, someone broke the oath. Who was it? And everyone says, it, was, it turns out it was Jonathan that broke the oath. And Saul says, Jonathan, you must die. And then the people say, no, he's not going to die. We love Jonathan. And what does Saul do? Okay. Popular. The root of reacting is fear of others. But there's also another fear here. There is fear for self. In chapter 15 it is clear why Saul does what he does or reacts as he does, self-perseverance, perseverance, fear for self, fear that he will not be honored. And this is true over and above what is good and right before God or his people. Look what happens after the victory and the disobedience and killing the animals. And the king, look in, at verse 10 in chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king. For he has not been loyal to me, and he has, gained, he has again refused to obey me. Samuel was so deeply moved that he heard, when he heard this, that he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, now hear, hear this in verse 12. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went out to Carmel to set up a monument to himself. This whole thing was about him. And then when he asks for forgiveness, and what does he say in verse 30? Please, go with me to worship. Honor me in the presence of the people. In other words, I have no other honor but the honor I give myself. I have no other reason to react or live or obey or not obey or even to honor God but myself, my own well-being. I work out of fear for myself, my glory as opposed to the glory of God and subsequently his people. Now, in Saul's story, we learn an irony of life. Fear of people operating out of people-pleasing can be bad for the people you're seeking to please. Bad for God's people. You know why? Because you can't make hard, but good decisions you know, for others' well-being. He was keeping people in disobedience to God. I mean, for Him to allow this to happen, of course the people wanted the sheep and the goat and the cattle. I mean, this stuff looked good. It would be, it, what's, what's our parallel? You break into this place and God says to burn it all and there's brand, brand new cars. You know, maybe there's some some free stock options or something. They're all sitting right there. You think, I can drive this car to the glory of God. You know, I can use this money. I'll give 20% to church on this. You know, it's one of those things. And so Saul, and you know, of course people want to do it. He says, go ahead and do it. And it's death to their souls. He, He leads them to death to their integrity and identity as a people. It's death to the relationship that matters most. People-pleasing destroys people. It can fool them. Let me, let me let you know something you probably already know. People are capable, are not capable of seeing themselves in their, wor- in their world themselves. Whether you're a Christian or not, you know this to be true, that people can't see everything about themselves or the world around them. So you can always come in and fool them into believing you are looking out for them but are actually looking out for your popularity. (laughs) When you are people-pleasing, you literally feed off people's hunger to have certain things that aren't always best for them. You know, most of us in people-pleasing, we're no different than drug dealers. You know, we give people what may hurt them and your payment is your security and your good feeling. I'm going to warn you about the guy that gets along with everybody. Hey, I'd get along with this person and he just out to please everybody. He can be a silent killer of the hearts of people. Some of us are such people pleasers, ironically, that you have become God haters. You know why? Because you hate a God that makes the popularity and security go away. And by extension, you create God-haters. For people begin to hate a God that doesn't seem to want to please them. They learn and are taught not to be loved by God, but to their detriment, to simply be appeased by God. You're afraid. Your God wishes for glory. And in that will run your friends and people away. Man, I I do that. I'm so afraid to be a Christian sometimes, because, and, and much less a pastor. Man, I just want to. I want people to be happy around me. You know, I want to please people. And so, what do you do? I mean, I, I mean, I have learned when I was in seminary. She used this line. You know, what what, what are you doing? I'm um, studying for a master's degree in the um, volunteer sector. Oh, okay, that's very nice. And the people service, I am um, uh, j- just l- let me not tell you something that could transform your life for eternity. So that I can feel good right now. My fear of you as pastor has caused me to injure some of you by being afraid to tell you the truth. But what's really at stake in such behaviorful people-pleaser is the fear for himself, his or her self-pleasure. You know, I, I, I sat down the other day with someone and I was like, um, we, we were talking about um, something we're involved in. I'm like, do do you just care for me as, as the end of this thing or whatever? And they were like, no, I probably care about the thing you're involved in more at this point than you. And that was good. That was honest. That was right. But here's the thing. When, when you realize that you're just a cog in someone's personal wheel, that, that you're just like an ingredient on the plate that makes them feel good, it just kills. Don't you know people will do some crazy and insane things and uh, self-perseverance. I mean, you know what they say when someone's drowning, be sure you know what you're doing to get them because they'll drown you when they feel desperate. People are so insecure. They will drown you, and we will drown others to save ourselves. Your parents, hard one, have made decisions good for you, right? That's not your story, all of you. You didn't have Ward and June Cleaver as parents. They made decisions oftentimes for them. They wanted you to major in that for them. They wanted you to marry this person for them. They wanted you to go to this school for them. They didn't want you doing this and singing and artists or whatever you're going to do. Come on, man, make some money. Make me proud. certain relationships yeah they loved you right no they didn't man i remember the college campus they, we used to call it the, the the walk of shame everybody knows this little walk right on friday night people walking like this look going to the boyfriend's house to be loved or the boyfriend go to the girlfriend house they are happy going but on the way back sometimes early sunday morning. Used, abused, self-love, husband and wives. Man, it feels—you feel it worse if you're married to somebody who loves themselves. I don't know anybody like that who thinks about themselves first before their wife. I don't know that person, right? It hurts. Let me tell you this. Here's the mistake Saul made as a leader. God calls us to react and respond. Not out of fear of people, but out of fear for people. Not out of fear for self, but fear of yourself. To care for people in fear that maybe they'll miss out what is most important to them. That the Lord loves them. Out of fear that you may get in the way of them knowing the Lord and His love and the dignity and, uh, that, that He's given them. Fear that people will get hurt and lost and condemned by religious activities that make them love you but hate God. Fear that you may just become more important than God to them and yourself and thus, of course, give them a less effective way of living. God is saying, out of love from you and me and his people and his purposes and his person offered for their well-being, I reject reacting out of fear of others and out of fear for self. I want my people to know me. I want them to have my word. I want them to have a way mediated and given. I want them led by one who has faithful and self-giving respect for the way I want to love people on this earth, for the way I please to care for them. God is rejecting Saul because he's a people and self-pleaser. But not only that, God rejects vain righteousness, which is a self-righteousness. See, Saul in his foolish and false rituals in his people and self-pleasing was on the human quest to be found right to be secure in being and doing, to have a monument to himself as he built in chapter 15, which means I want to be okay. I want to be more than okay. I want to be justified in myself. I want to be justified before people. I want to be important in the eyes of people. And more than that, he wants to be justified in the eyes of the law. And Samuel represents that. But look what happens in verse 27. After he admits he sinned, Look what he says. Verse 25. Oh, please, to Samuel, forgive my sin now. Not, Lord, forgive my sin. Samuel, forgive my sin. But Samuel replied, I will not return with you since you've rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you from being the king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, the Bible says Saul grabbed at him to try to hold him back and tore his robe Oh, it's so awesome the way the story is told. He grabs at Samuel. Samuel is his physical justification. When he's standing beside Samuel, the law, the man who represented what was godly and good, God's word and such, he felt he was all right. But it ripped in his desire to make it right. He couldn't hold it. His good behavior, his physical actions, it could not hold what between he and God would have to be held only by real and right relationship. See, Saul was not righteous enough to be the mediator of God and his people. It wouldn't hold. And his attempts to be righteous, to be okay, to feel good, to have purpose and meaning in and of himself, it backfired. Saul's rejected self-righteousness became a rejection of an unrighteousness. You see, at every turn, this is so ironic, of Saul trying in and of himself to be what God wanted and had called him to be wasn't just a miss. It was an offense to God that he would not turn to God in his inability, that he wouldn't turn to God in his poverty of leadership and his desire and lack to be all that he could be, to be stable and religious enough, respected, able to lead. In these failures, he didn't turn to God. He turned to disobedience and idolatry and he led God's people astray. And the ripping of the robe, a sign of, 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 of repentance shows the utter disdain God had for what Saul did. But look how he rejects it. It isn't just rejection of Saul's kingship. But he rejects Saul by giving a renewal, a redemption, a restoration of religion, a revitalization of leadership. Look at verse 28. And Samuel said to him, See, the Lord has turned the, torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, no way he changes mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. God is not going to leave his people and their hopes of real authentic relationship in the hands of any people chosen leaders. He's going to rip the kingdom out of the hands of humans and take them himself. God is going to bring an end to the human flop and bring fulfillment to humanity. Scripture says this, he's going to choose someone better than you. And then the description of God tells it all. He's going to rip the hope of people to know and be known by God out of his hands so that they will be led rightly and be given and become the glory of God right before God. Here's the catch. Who is better than Saul? Who is better than we are? We are all self-centered. We're all religious in some way. We don't have a chance if we look around this room for somebody to do it. So yes. We'll see. This is a prophecy about David, a king that God will choose, a king after God's own hearts. But we miss it if we think this is ultimately about David. See, we'll soon learn David was not always much better in behavior, though in contrast to Saul, he loved God. See, this is about Jesus. Who is better than we? Than us? Who can go for us? It is the one who is the glory of God's people. It is he who brings an end to our foolish ritualistic relationship. Because by his death he became the ritual that would always be right. That by looking to Christ, we can be sure that God is pleased and honored and obeyed. In Christ, all ritual and false religion bows. Who is better than you and me? Who can make us better? One who makes and declares us righteous, that by faith we need not try to be right before God and others, but are made right by His, someone else's good work for us. You see, our hope relies on God ripping the kingdom from the grasp of our king, ripping the kingdom from your grasp, that we can be free to have real relationship with God and not religious actings, that we can be free to be changed to serve others before ourselves, to have God rip the effectiveness of his kingdom from your hands today so that your sin, so that your and mine and others' inconsistency and stained lives can be clean before God, I urge you let Christ restore you and redeem you and free you. Let Christ bring finale to the human flop. Jesus alone, the King of Kings and Lord Alone, alone makes religion right. So that in relation with him, as we look to him to be our righteousness, as we look to him to be our perfection before a holy God, we no longer stand and worship and live before God as flops. But as people free to enjoy God, you can come to God, to Christ, into his church, into relationship. And for some of you, even lead others with confidence and assurance because Jesus, unlike Saul, truly does not lie and will, as promised, change you and others to make it right and real. Let me say this. Apart from seeking Christ to repair the gap in our hearts and lives that we have between us and God, and as a result, each other, you and I can do nothing but flop. We can be and produce nothing short of a ritual. In Christ Ritual becomes real. In Christ and only by Him, singing becomes real. Prayer becomes real. God becomes real. Some of us here have tried hard and are tired and we're burnt out and we've become cynical about God and Christianity. We are committed to the thing, you see. You, many of us are committed to the cult, to the organization. We do nursery and we do mercy and we do fellowship and we work hard and we sing and our so-called relationship with God, like Saul, feels like a relationship with someone else's God. You come here feeling like you're meeting with Pastor Howard's God or Pastor Giorgio's God or Christ Central's God, but not your God. If some of you stood up here to join the church, your heart is right at that place. And it does not have to be. We have forgotten, or maybe we've never known, that real religion, real connection with God comes only by right standing knowing and believing that you stand before God solely on the merits of Christ, of God's redeeming love. In the Old Testament, God says it this way. I delivered you out of Egypt. I loved and rescued you and blessed you before you could ever love me. In the New Testament, God says it this way. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And you and I, when we can't know and be confident of our standing before God, we will become people pleasers and religious. We will because we are seeking to touch and be touched by God with our own hands. We try to get God's attention by flopping. And God's not fooled. You know, it's funny, I can tell when we've forgotten what makes us accepted and worth something because you kind of get good at being a Christian you know, you look good. You're trying to get better at being better. You get good at trying to make others be better Christians. You're trying to be better at being good. I get good at making you and others and myself feel better instead of enjoying God and the liberty of someone who does not have to perform but is truly loved by God. Flop no longer. Come to Him. Admit your disobedience and not seeing and seeking Christ alone. Here's the good news. The kingdom is not in the hands of any religious tyrant. The kingdom is not in the hands of someone who is looking to exploit you for personal gain. The kingdom is in the hands of a savior. A savior that loves and redeems and welcomes and has the power to transform flops into freed people of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to play. We don't have to be fooled. We don't have to be fooled. The power and extension and love of the kingdom is in the hands of your Savior, our Savior Christ. Lord, free us from having to please people. Free us from having to always look out for number one. Free us with Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.